Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And RORAG is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. This is episode 30 of the Raw Ag podcast. My guest is Jonathan Wright. John founded and runs Bluey, a seed stock composite herd from Woodstock in New South Wales. John is a passionate cattle breeder and is not afraid of speaking his mind. In this podcast, we cover environment, NFI, and a bit of breeding politics. Uh, welcome to the Raw Ag podcast, John. Thanks very much, Tom. Great to be here. So whereabouts are you at the moment? Um, yeah, home in Cowra, sunny old Cowra, um, which is looking pretty fantastic at the moment. Um, just a beautiful time. We've just got heaps of feed. Um, cattle prices are incredible. And, um, yeah, our COVID situation has been pretty relaxed over the last year or so other than a couple of little bumps. Yep. So I'm um, finding ourselves very, very grateful. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Uh, it's been pretty easy in the uh, in the bush, really, hasn't it? There hasn't been, a, you know, a few social, oh, social, social things have been cancelled, but other than that, we're sort of carried on pretty much as normal. Farmers are struggling to find something to complain about at the moment. That's right. Yep. John, tell me a little bit about um, what you get up to up there You've, uh, and what Blue E all stands for and is? Um, Tom, probably it's about 23 years ago I came back to the family farm. I'd gone to uni and um, and then got a job working for the ag department on a research farm out at Trangy, which was looking into um, feed efficiency in beef cattle and the genetics of that. And after about five years there, I'd always wanted to come back to the family farm and so I did, but at the same time, I had this mad idea that um, I was going to cross two breeds together and give it a name and, you know, sort of include feed efficiency or feed conversion in the sort of selection index that we were going to breed these cattle from. So that was 23 years ago. We built ourselves a little facility on the farm there, a sort of 48 individual pen facility, so we could put a bull in each and record how much they were eating each day. I think you actually came up to a, a field day that we had, I don't know how long ago, Tom, that would be, but well, probably nearly something 15, like, 18 years ago, I think. Something like that, yeah. That and, 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 um, and spoke. But, yeah, you saw the facility. It was pretty basic but did the job. Um, and so we've been doing that every bullet we bred. Uh, the composite that we developed was a short-horn Angus Cross 50-50 uh, line of cattle and it was just about sort of trying to create a multi-trait line of cattle that included feed efficiency in it we certainly weren't doing single trait selection for feed efficiency but just including it trying to breed sort of a you know profit driven line of cattle um, and so yeah that's been our game the last four years we've changed our sort of recording system over to a new system that's out of Canada technology and automated feeding system called GrowSafe, and that company has now become GrowSafe Vitelli. 
And so we do all our intake recording is all done automatedly now and all the data is controlled out of Canada, which makes it very easy for us. So it's um, very exciting and really interesting. So that's, um, you know, years before it's time. We, I mean, Hamilton DPI was, uh, I think we might have had some animals there in the 2000. We've just played around with it compared to you. Um, because, and, and, but you've really, really dedicated your whole, um, you know, net feed intake into your selection index, as you said. Um, and you've gone from feeding buckets. Imagine, uh, how many buckets do you reckon you filled up with feed and emptied out again? Over the uh, over the eighteen years or whatever, or no, how many sixteen years of doing NFI? That's uh, uh, every day you need to fe- weigh the animal, weigh the feed into the bunk, and then scrape out what they haven't eaten. Do you do that? Is that what you were doing? Yeah. We've just finished um, test fifty that we've done. Just finished last week. Wow! So that's fifty individual seventy day tests that we've done over the time. So the last. You know, eight of those probably are in the automated feeding system. Everything before that was in the manual system. So we just had a, a cart with a sort of load cells on the back that sort of we trailed around the laneways and picked up the tub, put it on the scale and weighed what was left from yesterday and filled it up again with the, the new amount. And in the beginning, we were recording that on paper, yeah, like pen on the thing but anyway thank god technology's moved on because i'm not yeah. sure my back and knees would have stood it much longer but and we're going and, and, and just going to, great gun. yeah just to clarify that's not 50 animals over that time is it that's 50 cohorts 50 tests 50 yeah. 70 day tests yeah we've done so far yeah yeah no, so that's it's about, about i don't know 1400 1500 individual animals that we've tested right and yeah. um yeah, four and fifteen hundred bulls we've tested. So it's going. I just I think you know through the Sire progeny test, Angus Society has tested probably about four hundred bulls. I think since they've started. So we've tested, you know, fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred, yeah, yeah. Um, bulls. Really good effort so, and, and yeah, interesting. And very early adopted, and um, so you got hold of that. You started doing that because of your experience at Trangy, and that's yeah, yeah. Okay. So how, how much have you moved net feed intake? You know, phenotypically, what, do you, what have you seen? Well, I think it's interesting now. It's, it's a hard one to gauge. Um, the last two tests that we've done, we have actually started opening up our composite um, over the last couple of years. So we're bringing in some sort of composite bulls from, you know, America and different ones that are performing well and, you know, probably based around the Simmental and Simmental Angus cross type bulls. So we decided we'd open it up a bit more if we were going to be, you know, singing from the song sheet of the value of crossbreeding and composite breeding, then just sticking to the short horn and Angus sort of thing was a bit hypocritical. So, and, you know, there's some fantastic genetics that's evolved out of those, those lines of cattle. So we've included those. So, um, if you said that those bulls that we've included sort of come from an unselected population and we're putting them over our bluey cows and then testing the progeny, when you do an average comparing those bulls from outside comparing to our own size, there's about, you know, one a one figure of um, difference in feed conversion. So the calves out from outside 
um, side by bulls that come out of populations that haven't done any selection for feed efficiency. They're, you know, uh, having feed conversion figures of about 6.5 and ours are averaging about 5.5. So right. they're half-bred animals, remembering. So they're half bluey, half from outside. So, you know, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say we've probably moved our population, you know, from a 7-1 converter to a 5-to-1 converter. Wow. Yeah. About so, yeah. No, that's, um, that's what I was after, you know, something like that. So, um, and, and, you know, the interesting thing about that is that now uh, society's attitudes changed so much um, with, the, with uh, our concerns about climate change that that's, that is significant, isn't it, in, that, in, in contribution to reducing um, cattle's greenhouse gas emission. Yeah, it is, Tom. Like the, you know, it's been an enormous amount of work done in this area um, over the years. Much, much of it not really extended very well, and um, and and not heard about it. But um, a lot of work was done in Armadale through the university there, and looking at the genetics of methane production and and the facets around that. And you know, where it landed was, you know, that the strongest indicator of methane production from um, beef cattle is really intake. So the more an animal eats, the more methane they produce. It's, it's that simple. Um, there's some variations around that, sure, but um, you know, there's anything that you can do in a production system or in a breeding sense or in an individual animal sense that will decrease their intake will mean that an that animal is producing um, less methane. So that's all very interesting. Um, if we actually bred single trait selected for methane, we'd end up getting our animals smaller and smaller and smaller and growing slower and slower. And that would be totally counterproductive because those animals would live for longer and be less productive and take more resources to produce a kilogram of beef. So that's where it landed in the place that feed efficiency was a was a you know a, a, a strong way to to reduce methane production, but keep production up and keep profitability up. So, um, and that's one of a number of facets that the beef industry has to look at. I think. So we could go back just one step, and you could describe explain to us exactly what NFI is, because it's not quite as simple as you might think, is it? And in so much as it's not just no, that animal eats less. Day. You know, it's it's confusing, and you know, for the majority of people, they don't really need to know. It's it's in the world of the seed stock industry, we really need to understand this. But basically, selecting for NFI is the responsible tool that you use to shift feed conversion ratio uh, feed conversion ratio in our populations. So. The pig industry and the poultry industry learnt that if you select directly on feed conversion ratio, your animals just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you you know, they did it so quickly. Remember that, you know, all that yeah. information from those so, industries. So that's, sort of, that's, so grow, that's gross grow. feed conversion, isn't it, really? Because growth rate and, yeah, that's right. growth rate and uh, gross so feed, got, they're really highly correlated. Well, they are virtually the same. Yeah, thing. that's right. 
So the sensible way to do it um, and responsible way to do it is using net feed intake. So it's taking the relationship between growth and feed efficiency out and putting animals on an equal equal paying, um, playing field. So net feed intake is uh, selecting animals um, for how well they convert feed, taking into account how big the animal is and how fast it's growing. So it's just making those traits independent. So when we select for need intake, uh, net feed intake, we can choose our cow size or our body size or our growth rate and use other traits to select for those, but not necessarily directly through the feed efficiency. So it's, it is a bit confusing, yep. but basically our goal is still to shift feed conversion ratio, but in a, um, a responsible way. So we've used net feed intake over the last 23 years in selecting our animals, but when we look at feed conversion ratio as a, a guide to see whether we've made any difference. We know we've changed, you know, our net feed intake figures, but ultimately we're trying to make just basically better converting animals. And we know we've been doing that by, the, you know, we've looked at that for year after year and um, those sort of figures are now evident to us that I was telling you about before. Well, you know, you've done really well and uh, and, and, obvious, and taught a lot of people about it too because it's great to go and see practical examples of people pulling these early adoption stuff together and making it commercially work and you've done a good job of that. And as a consequence, we've, uh, you know, taken the plunge as well. GrowSafe's now on its way to us via, from Canada, so that'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, looking forward to setting it all yeah. up. Congratulations, congratulations, and welcome to the family. <laughs> so you're family, mad scientists, and not very many yet. Um, you know, you go to the large companies, um, AA company. Um, I'm not sure of the others. Uh, oh, Lawson, uh, yeah. Lawson's yeah. Angus. Um, and yeah. so there's not very many, are there? No, it's it's t- the two biggest large, two biggest cattle producers in Australia. Um, one Angus stud, say Lawson's, and then the breed societies, just Wagyu and Angus, yep. as a breed society, yeah, um, have the gears. Many, many more right around the world, um, but not many in Australia. Yet. And also, obviously, research. You know, there's a fair few. Uh, Talimba has quite a lot of gross safe machines. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so was this um, the, your pursuit of NFI? Was that because you had a particular interest in the environment, and were you aware of uh, environmental concerns when you twenty three years ago when you decided, or was it more to do with producing efficient animals, or both? <laughs> oh, absolutely not! Absolutely not! Like twenty twenty three years ago, no one was talking about it. We had no idea. The basic principles of why we did it because I just through my time at Trangy, you know was lucky enough to see that thing where you're standing with a, a, a yard of animals looking at their figures and seeing two bulls looking at you and saying this one's converting at eight to one and this one's converting at four to one and they don't look that much difference and you know all the uh, sort of in, in a research situation we were analyzing everything else and looking at everything else and there didn't seem to be any any other, you know, correlated traits that were a problem. And here we are, you know, 
23 years down the track um, and there hasn't really been any correlated traits of any significance. I can tell you we've done it for 23 years. People still talk about those correlated traits as, as if they're there and yep. it's just unbreakable. they've all been debunked. Yeah, it's just, it's. I don't know why people still do that, but the science obviously went out to try and show those things. There's a slight correlation with fat, but it's not strong. And we know that with, you know, a bit of pressure, selection pressure, we can work around that. We've, we've, we've worked very well. The Angus breed has worked very, very well with the correlation between growth and, and birth weight and have turned it on its head. Um, that's a lot stronger correlation than the one between fat and net feed intake. So it's p possible. But people always talk about that, you know, high feed converting animals are going to be raw and hard and it's just not true. It's not true. We've shown that. We've um, tested our cattle. We've had them in many different situations and collect all the data because I don't want to breed those sort of animals. I wouldn't still be in the game if I was breeding raw, hard mongrel cattle. I just I wouldn't want to do it. But we're very proud of the cattle that we're breeding it. And we have a, a responsible selection process in taking a very multi-trait and, and gradual approach to breeding cattle. Well, well done. So, um, but you now do have quite an, um, an opinion about environment, and as we all do. Um, and so where do you see, you know, how agriculture in Australia is going to fit into, you know, perhaps meeting these um, uh, 20, 50 or 30 targets? Yeah, it's a big one, Tom. And... Um, uh, I talked to you before the show and you said be as honest and hard and real as you want to be. Um, and so I make no apologies for for the way I think. And um, it's come from a lot of, um, you know, be 10 years ago I sat down and read something that said, you know, the beef, the beef industry contributes as much as the whole transport industry um, as far as emissions are concerned and going, what? Like, so the process process for me was knowing the sort of the culture that we lived in with within in the beef industry I wasn't going to start talking about that stuff um, because I knew I'd get held down so we really had to do a lot of reading and a lot of research and a lot of talking and um, a lot of questioning to say you know I want to make sure this is real and it's it's something um, with substance um, before, so we took ten years to get to the place where we are now, where we're starting to talk about it. So it's come; it's been a slow road, but you know we're so sick of the melodrama. I know, but this issue of emissions related to the beef industry, related to climate change, is possibly the greatest threat that the beef industry has ever seen outright ever. And if you think that's melodramatic and you don't think that's true, you know, that is your opinion. But I, I, I care and, and, and love breeding cattle and care and love the industry that I'm in and have been involved with it all my life. And I am really scared for the way consumers are going to behave over the next 20 years in relation to our industry if we don't stand up and take responsibility for where we sit within our whole society and within our world because they're just going to leave us in droves and, 
you know, we'll be left standing there with um, our land worth nothing and nowhere to sell our animals to if we don't take this seriously. So I, I know I apologise for the melodrama, <laughs> but it so, scares the, it scares the hell out of me. So John, we've talked about this and obviously um, exchanged. Uh, animated discussion i suppose <laughs> but um so so um you know I, I and you know that i have two views to this that we need to do what we need to do to fix anything that we are doing that is contributing to climate change but i think there is also some responsibility that we have to make sure that the assumptions that have been made uh, are correct and, you know, sometimes, uh, and, and agriculture's seen it and beef has seen it so many times, you know, things like water usage and feed conversion ratios, demonising demonizing the beef industry for water usage, which actually was really incorrect. I mean, I had to read, it was written in my son's geography book that um, beef cattle uh, um, consume 50,000 litres of water per kilogram produced. Um, and that's now been overturned and changed. And the same with feed consumption, you know, um, and we can, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be changing um, feed conversion ratios, but um, comparing cattle to fish is, and just saying that a fish eats 1.5 kilograms of um, feed to get a kilogram of growth and cattle eat seven, uh, and that's the same thing. That, I mean, that, that is not correct. Um, and um, because a fish needs to eat 35% protein, a fish really needs to eat fish to grow like that. Um, you need to, it needs to be very well um, engineered in fish nets and augured to the fish nets, and, whereas cattle roam around and collect the food themselves, and there's a big difference. Um, and they often, you know, and as, as our wonderful animals, as you know about them, you know, they, they're very good at eating things that nothing else can consume. So a part of me is, you know, I, I'm absolutely fully aware that we need to take on every bit of responsibility that, and solve the issues that we are, uh, the way we contribute to climate change, but we also need to make sure the facts are right, and I don't think they are completely right. Um, you know, for the mayor of New York to stand up last year and say Meatless Monday means to say it's going to save so, uh, the equivalent greenhouse emissions is stopping driving your car for six months... I mean that's just that's just nonsense. Okay, um, so I look at it from a point of view that um, what we what we strongly have to understand in the beef industry is that it doesn't matter what we think. Yeah, it does. The people who are going <laughs> to decide whether they continue to consume beef or not yeah. is not the beef industry. We're 0.1% of the consumers. So, you know, what you have to work out is how are we going to communicate with those consumers? Remember, you're 80% of our beef goes overseas. How are we going to con communicate to those consumers what we're doing? So, so you can yeah. have a discussion about whether it's what the percentage is um, and, and whether we're being too much is being allocated to us or too much, yeah. not enough or whatever. You can have those. You can try and shoot the messenger and, and say they just don't understand. Once they understand 
what the, the real calculations are and what we're really doing once they understand you know the what the, there'll be no problem for us no no i, I didn't mean i didn't mean I that I, I i'm not saying that at all i think there's some response there's a, and I'm a not large saying i'm not but yeah, I'm not saying you're saying that. I'm saying that's a, a general view of yep. lots of people out there is, is yeah. sort of going. No, I don't know, agree with what that. We just, I what I know we what need to do is, yeah, we have to we have to think how we're going to communicate. Do you know, you know, as far as consumers are concerned, it's a pretty busy airspace out there. You know, the beef industry is trying to communicate to them. So is pork, so is chicken, so is lamb, so is broccoli, so is wine, so is bread, so is sugar. Everybody's trying to, you know, we are not that important as a, you know, it's hard to hear, but it's true. We need to understand all we are is a stake and nobody gives a rats about us, really. We care a lot, but they don't. And it's just a form of protein and they will drop us in a second if they're given good cause to or they feel they will because there's lots of alternatives out there so it's lovely to under, you know to love our industry but you have to understand what a, what part you pay in people's lives and it's not much and that's all right it's not it's not you know i'm not going to lose sleep because i'm not the most important thing in the world i you know that is for me to work out why I do what I do and what I enjoy and what makes me feel um, strong and powerful. Um, I don't, you just have to understand the beef industry is just a supplier of a protein to people and people don't give a shit. They really don't. And do not expect yep. them to because if you do, you set yourself up for a massive disappointment and maybe a massive failure in the way that you will communicate to them because they do not care and they shouldn't have to. They care as much as they do about broccoli or cabbage or eggs or anything else. It's just a form of protein and it's just a food. Yeah, so look, they're going to I, care I, about I, their family. I, I agree with all of that. I do. But I think that, you know, in, in the whole um, beef industry um, greenhouse gas emission debate, there's, there's clear science that we need to address. Um, but there's also some ideologies that, um, uh, emotional and incorrect that need to be spoken about and talked about so we don't go and try and solve something that actually isn't a problem. I mean, to spend resource on solving an issue that actually doesn't exist is a seriously big waste of time. Um, and, you know, uh, you, you, you would be aware of what's going on at um, UCL Davis Clear Centre, Frank Middleowner and a few that are trying to um, peer review some of the world science to have another look at it um, and, you know, recalculate some of, the, um, some of the science that's come out. I don't think that hurts to continue to do that, does it? As long as, yeah, I suppose, as long as, as long as it doesn't um, seem like we're trying to, and I get your point, we don't want to be seeing like we're, we're, we're trying to avoid the responsibility. And I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I think that we need to also, um, we have a conflict of interest in this. If we don't have a conflict of interest, we don't have an interest at all. And you and I see things in beef cattle that, you know, some of the, that, that um, we know that they, um, you know, can fit into the carbon cycle pretty, pretty well 
at completely different levels. I mean, to say that um, the transport system is a problem in the carbon cycle, so we should just eradicate the transport system and not fix it. That's um, yeah, and you know, um, I think there's I think, ways of fixing think, the beef industry so it can be palatable, but I think that we need to get the science right too, so we're fixing the right bits. You just have to be very, very careful that we don't spend our time trying to debunk and deny and and yeah. push away. Or, you know, and, and the, the, there is irregularities there and there is things that aren't true or overemphasized. But you spend your whole time on that and not spending your energies on trying to attend just to the part of the emissions that are attributed to us. Nobody expects the beef industry to fix climate change. All I ask is we take responsibility for the part that we're playing, and it's only a small part. Well, yeah, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. Yeah. All of industry. Yeah. And everybody else is taking responsibility for their small part, maybe not the coal industry, but we're now being – Barnaby Joyce said it yesterday. He lumped us in with coal in his fears for the industry. He said the beef industry, the feedlot industry, and the coal industry are under enormous threat from this. And if you want to say, well, then let's just fight till the end to try and prove them wrong, then there's an enormous amount of lost opportunity. In we, 80% of our beef goes overseas. We will lose those markets. We've got them. We've got those markets. We're the ones talking to them. We're the ones involved with them. And unless we, we provide the product that they're looking for, they will go somewhere else. We will lose them as customers. So it is so important that we are seen to be proactive and doing things that can, we can explain to the consumers in other countries in simple form that this is the actions we're taking. Denying and pretending it's not happening or trying to debunk the science we have wasted the last 10 years doing that, and it's time that we got on with some solutions. We need to be doing more than trying to find a bit of seaweed that's going to stop a few cattle in feedlots from burping so much. Yeah, look, I agree with you, but, but, but I think we can do both things at the same time. We can address what we need to. And look, honestly, putting coal and beef together... And the transport system and beef together is just ridiculous. I mean, the beef industry has a 23-year carbon but Tom, cycle. you have to understand, Tom, you have to understand it's not ridiculous because that's where the emissions come from. Nobody meant it to happen. No, no, no one was bad being a beef farmer or anything like that. But you continue <laughs> to, to deny and, 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 and want to fight it. Just take that energy and let's get on with doing something positive for our industry because it is positive. The things, there's of course four major things that the big industry can do. We can work on genetics. We can work on our management. We can work on the diet of our animals and we can work on sequestering carbon. There's four major things that we can do. And, and the more we spend our time focusing on those things and presenting a positive story for the product that we're producing, the more likely we're to take consumers with us. Yeah, that's, and then the that, is, that, is already ha that is already happening. I mean, and particularly in companies yeah. where, you know, the companies are getting pressure from shareholders to address um, the, the, the beef portfolio, financial portfolio's um, carbon emissions. And so companies um, running beef cattle are doing lots 
to address on those four four pillars and and 100% I support it and we're you know we're going to we're involved in genetics supplying to some of those companies and we're we're doing our bit to help them do that yeah. um and but I won't be, but I won't be part of a Tom I won't be part of the thing to say that we're doing lots and there's lots of people doing because we're not I'm sorry it doesn't cut it to the people outside just to move some furniture around on on the sinking ship. Well, I don't think um, we're and it doesn't cut cut yeah. it just to produce some some lovely fluffy green marketing material to tell people we're doing a thing. It doesn't cut it, and I'm sorry for being a bit harsh so, about so, it. So, so, but, but the reality is. So it, if, if the, th- the the difference is what's occurred in the last four or five years is that the investors are insisting on it, and investors don't exactly. investors don't get swallowed up by by um, being hoodwinked by glossy brochures. Uh, investors want to see the facts, and that's what's driving um, agricultural uh, beef industries change in in their attitude. It's where the investment money is coming from. I mean the the signals think, the know, signals from the consumers aren't good because the beef prices at the moment are as high as they've ever been at a period of time where everyone's telling us that beef's bad for the environment we're going to address environment issues the financial signal we're getting at the moment is that um, we can't get enough of it you know it's really quite confusing that but and wouldn't this be the time isn't the old saying in any farm or you know system you know when the sun shines make hay so isn't this the time that we should be investing an enormous amount of our time, money and energy into trying to attend to this potential risk? I don't yeah, know yeah. what's I think, going to happen. I, I think you're, you're all, right. You're right. We have to use this time where we're all doing incredibly well to be smart in our businesses. I think there's more being done than you're giving credit. <laughs> I think there's much more being done. Yeah, it, than you're yeah. than you're giving credit to you know. I do. I actually think there's a, the, lot, a lot more being done. You know the. Uh, MLA, do you want to do, do you want to give me examples of it? Well, the MLA's um, CN30 program. There, you know, there's there's um, money going. You know, levy payer money and um, donor money going into research into reducing. They have a, an emissions um, neutrality. By, thir- by 2030 goal. Um, and so, you know, those sorts of things are on the agenda now, well and truly, and there's money being spent on it. Um, to say... That- oh, no, I absolutely applaud that. I really do. I just, I just think that is so fantastic. But, you know... We've got to change culturally. We've got to change farmers' views as well, and that's much more difficult. Yeah, and it scares me, Tom. And you don't want, you don't want me saying that it's not uh, it, uh, anything to do with. We've got to also make sure that you know the facts are correct because you think that it'd be better. Yeah. It'd be just better to tell a really grim, gruesome story so everyone's frightened into doing something. Oh no! <laughs> you um, you just have to. That that, that has been you know the language. Of environmentalists for a long time, it has, yeah. um, and as as you know, as time changes, and I'm, you know, it, it's a bit harsh because I've suffered it myself in the space where you get called a maddie, and you know, you're an idiot and you're just obsessed with it or something like that. I don't know, and then 
10 years down the track. That's why I've got you on the, the podcast because you are a bit of a maddie. Don't let yeah, me down. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, but that part 10 years down the track, the people are having the same conversation as you are. And you're sort of going, remember how you used to call me a maddie? It's like it's, it's <laughs> your own, you know, you, uh, people seem like it's extreme or, 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 or it's, you know, God, you're blowing it all out of context or you're making too much of a drama of it. Well, you know, when when you sort of the, the part that says if you smoke and then 10 years down the track you get cancer and the people back there telling you to try and, you know, it's trying to get you to stop, stop smoking, they sit at the other end there going, well, you know, I did try and tell you. Um, People yeah. will get very melodramatic about something that they care about and, and they feel strongly about, and that's what changes people and changes the world and has done for centuries. And so, you know, I don't mind sounding like a bit of a maddie in this space because I bloody well care about this industry and I love it. And I've been, you know, knee-deep in cow shit since about I was two years old. <laughs> so it's not – I've got no other agenda. I've got no other agenda to try and – I can hear the, I can hear the than, passion, don't you sure. worry. I'm sure the listeners can too. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's just it, – it's it scares me because people say, what else are they going to do with the land if you don't graze on cattle? And they say, I don't know, but they'll find something because there will not be a market for the product. So you can say, well, what else are we going to do with all this grass on these paddocks around? Um, if cattle don't eat it, and so I don't know, but it just won't be cattle because nobody's going to be consuming it. So they'll that's, find that's something. Just not they'll possible. run farms to, to to get you know to sequest carbon. That will be your job. Will be to run a farm and sequest carbon. So you'll do practices that used to be done by cattle, but done mechanically, or who knows what they'll do in different species of grasses or whatever. Maybe we'll make hay and bury it underground. To sequest carbon or something. I don't know, but no, you can't John, say. I think uh, John, John, you're drawing too long a bow. I mean, you know, to be to be um, slotting beef into a ecosystem uh, in a, an environmentally and um, uh, understanding way, and I'm not saying we're doing that now, but to to work out a system where we can do it and do it responsibly and maintain carbon neutrality is possible totally possible and you know it is we just, just got to get there so. we've just to we've got to get there yeah yeah the, the thing that the other side of it tom is I mean, we've talked about this before but you know globally the conversation that is had you know right across the world about what do you do to reduce um individuals every individual has to take responsibility um, in relation to climate change. Everybody has got to change something if we're going to fix this problem. And I know it's it doesn't sound very nice, but it's what I absolutely believe. My number one priority is to fix climate change. My second priority is to save the beef industry. And if we don't take that in, that attitude, then we're going to be in trouble I, in, in 20 or 30 years' time. But we have to focus on fixing the problem of climate change first and then the beef industry second. And if we do that, the consumers will come with us and allow us to develop a product that they can see. We're just taking responsibility for our little parts. That's all they want to see us do. They'll stick with us. Yep. So in that consumer part, it says, what are they told to do? Is drive less, fly less, um, uh, 
use less energy and access your energy for a renewable source and eat less red meat. Now, you can argue all you like that that's not right or whatever percentage is not whatever. That is the mantra that is right across the world. So you sit that into the place, which is the easiest one for people to do out in that space? Yeah, look, I- it's, it's them to adapt their diet is easy. It doesn't cost them any money to stop driving or, or uh, you know, use less energy all of those things are difficult to do and and takes a lot of investment and time for them that's just a fact that's just a part that sits there that's really worrying and so it's you know as people feel more and more passionate about um the need to fix the problem of climate change they're just going to start jumping at obvious things and so whether we like it or not or whether we think the percentages are right or not this is a real threat to ourselves and unless we present ourselves with a really strong and communicable message to those those consumers we're going to be in trouble yeah and i think that's that's on the cards and on the way i think i have more confidence that that's being addressed um right now but and and it, we, we will be able to work through it so that'll be good let's just move on yeah. we've done the environment yeah. thing i think you've um got that on tick got that one off your chest there john so um I bored you tears on that one, Tom. <laughs> so um uh, good. Now what I wanted to talk about now, because you're a um uh composite animal breeder, which um means that you can't necessarily be aligned to um a an analytics program other than what you're doing. You're using uh beef Dollar beef, dollar index, as your dollar profit. Sorry, dollar profit. Um, to and your so you get compared amongst those those animals in that nucleus in the United States, and um, and we are involved in a in a group designed by the Angus Society, which um, for you know which is serving its purpose. Um, Tell us about, you know, the genetic pipeline is seriously complicated um, beyond, um, and I know that you have quite an insight into some of the workings of it and how it works, but um, how are we going to solve, how are we going to get to a position where you and I can trade genetics between each other and we know um, that they're going to, you know, what the effect is across both of our herds? So just on that, you know, in a little bit of history in that part, we recorded our whole herd with the Angus Society for the first 18 years, 19 years or something like that, because that's all we had. And um, so we submitted all our data to Angus Australia. You know, they were fantastic because they produced an NFI EPD that nobody else was doing around the world, really. Um, So, you know, we got EBVs. Um, for all the traits through the Angus Society. What we what we found, that was through the multi-breed register. What we found over time was the problem was that Angus was prepared to take anything into the system that was um, Angus, but nothing, no, you know, there was no link over with any other breed society. They wouldn't take any short-horn information into their database. I understand why they do that because that's the way the breed society is structured. And if it was a short horn society or other societies, maybe they would do the same. But for us, 
um, by not taking half the genetics into the calculations meant that we didn't have confidence in the information that was coming out. And so it was very, very hard for us to make that change, but we then looked for um, other places to put our data rather than ang the Angus Society. Um, and fortunately for us, a couple of other databases had evolved. So IGS, which is sort of through the Simmental Association in America, um, have a multi-breed uh, data recording system now. And so does uh, Dollar Profit, which is um, initiated by uh, the Leachman family in America. There's two databases that take information from any breed. They don't care who you are, what your breed is. It's just it's just data. As long as you've got the pedigree information there, um, they don't care what breed it is. It's going into those databases. So they're multi-breed, true multi-breed databases spitting out um, EPDs for all traits. And so that's where we've put our stuff. The IGS system uh, isn't including feed efficiency in their indexes yet. So... Uh, the only one that was was dollar profit so we've gone with that and we've been very happy with the information that's um coming out of that so yeah it was a bit of frustration going on there that that um in relation to the the breed society stuff but as we evolve in these sort of places the more that we can get our animals into a situation where we can compare then we're more likely to make greater gains within the beef industry i think yeah so at the moment there's um you know, a lot of work being done on mul um, multi-breed in Australia. The Southern Project and the, the rep Repronomics Project in the North is both both multi-breed analysis. Um, they're, you know, basically doing research to see, you know, how those genetics work together and how much relationship they need and how much linkage they need before they can join them. Um, and, you know, things like hybrid vigour and ha all have to be taken into consideration. Um, would you, you know, the day that uh, um, Australia goes towards multi-breed, because let's face it, the dairy is all multi-breed chicken, uh, the, the sheep are now multi-breed um, with, you know, broken um, into different uh, maternal and um, terminal lines and things. But by and large, uh, everything else is multi-breed. Why, why isn't beef? Well, yeah, it's a it, it's a, a very interesting and sometimes very frustrating story. But I've always found it really fascinating that around the world we've siloed ourselves into all these little individual groups that don't communicate with each other, will not accept any genetics from each other. That one thing is based on the hair follicle colour on the coat of the animals, which has absolutely nothing to do with the profit drivers of beef production. So, you know, there's some breeds that can, you know, the animal has to be all red. Then there's other breeds that they have to be all white, but then some other breeds that can be red and white, but there's other breeds that have the white in one place, but <laughs> not in another. And then it's, it's, I mean, it's just madness that we all silo ourselves in these all based on the color of the animal but it's not just the color it's some animals can have white and red and white and red but that you know it's it's quite bizarre that we think and then the siloing effect where there's no you know 
Some of them are extreme for some traits and others are extreme for a different trait. The best way to breed a multi-trait animal is incorporate the, the extremes and use those things to increase the average. You need to do it sensibly and, and, and you know, slowly, but we do that all the time within our breeds. We take the animals that are the outliers and use those to improve the average. Why can't we do that right across the industry? Because we would make greater change. And one of the greatest examples of that is we know why it happened. All the breeds that went black, Simmental changed their hair follicle colour on the outside to predominantly all black now, so they could. we know why. The interesting part is when you look at the resultant animals, they used Angus, combined it with Simmental and created this other animal so it would have a black coat. But it's interesting to look at those animals and say, well, they're pretty good. Are they better? Like, is, is what's come out of that better than the two breeds it came with? That's what hybrid vigour and crossbreeding says should happen. And, and you start looking into those animals and it just might be true. It actually might be true that they're the greatest examples and, and the greatest trial of what composite breeding can do is combining breeds to create a better animal. And so while ever we silo ourselves in these places of um, according to hair follicle colour on the outside of the skin, um, it, it just stops us making the progressions that our competitors have made, which is chicken and pork and lamb and fish and the dairy industry, you were saying, are doing it as well, have done it as well, obviously. Um, you know, we're just, we're just foregoing incredible gains in profitability and, you know, probably down the track in um, just making a better quality and uh, product that um, will make it, the beef producers more profitable and, and mainly the, cons you know, the commercial producers more profitable. The Breed Society, Rain, the greatest people who've suffered from that are the commercial producers, unfortunately. And I know it's not very nice to say, but it's true. Yeah, so, I mean, the, uh, I look, I, I like, I, I suppose I could throw a scenario up. I think that the dairy industry's gone multi-breed because they want to produce more milk and better quality and uh, through their genetic selection process, and they needed to go multi-breed to do it. And the sheep industry did it because they wanted to produce commercial lambs. And unfortunately, the beef industry's, I think the beef industry's um, analysis system is too focused on breeding bulls. And there is a subtle difference. And, and the subtle difference is if the, if the beef industry moved to improving Australia's um, beef industry genetic um, nucleus, then we would go multi-breed. Thank you for saying that. That's that's um, very very brave, Tom. And it's certainly a part that I'm starting to get quite. Um, you know, I think it's important for us to start to acknowledge the power of the seed stock industry, the influence that they have, um, and the self-servingness that that has happened over a long period of time in the beef industry. If you look at our competitors. The seed stock part of the chook industry are just a group, some blokes in white coats, you yeah. know, you know, room down the corridor. 
That's all they are. The same in in, in the um, pork industry and in lamb, the lamb industry. You know, those the seed stock industry in those industries doesn't run the industry, yet it does in beef. So no wonder it becomes self-serving when you have um, an industry that's run by the seed stock industry because breed societies run the industry. And, you know, I'm, I know it's hard to hear, but you ask MLA, their, their frustration is all these silos that they've got to deal with and all these people thinking, no, my breed's the best, it's the absolute best. Nobody working together. And if one breed society asks for something and MLA gives it, then they've got to give it to everybody. So it makes it really hard for them to give anything. <laughs> yeah, there's 23, um, 23 so silos a, at the moment. 20, 23 yeah. silos. There's six versions of breed plan. I think there's probably two or three running at the moment because they try as hard as they can to amalgamate them, but they often have to write a different version because of a slightly different requirement. Um, and you can imagine managing... No, even within breeds. Imagine the cost of running all that compared to running a single you know, analysis over the, bre- over the whole... Anyway, um, yeah, you and I... In Galloway's, there's like three different breeds, three different societies. In Shorthorns, at one stage, there was three three different ones you know it's not only just they within the with you know within the coat color then within the coat color then they start having differences it's just what a waste of resources what a waste of resources and energy and time in siloing all that when we all should be working together to produce a multi-trait animal that best you know that makes commercial producers profitable that's what we should be focusing on yeah, I think. Uh, look, I think that um, you know, there's still a place for members, people to come together as members of breeds to, you know, to do what, what they want to do together. That's nothing, nothing wrong with that. And um, but the analysis of the data um, has moved on now. I mean, it, it originally, um, um, breeds society, the the analysis was done initially within herd, and then it went to breed plan, which meant that each breed would have its own analysis and they so they had to go to the breed societies to do that that was the next step um and you know at a time when there was no pcs there was no internet uh there was no email um everything was written in paper form and sent to the breed society office for them to type it into the or not into the breed society office but to the to uh, abri who had a contract with the breed society to do it so they needed to go to the breed society to roll it out um part of the problem with the beef industry unfortunately for the for them is that they were such early adopters of this um technology that they can't now break away from the way that it was adopted in the first place which is now obsolete does that make sense? Yeah. And so there's going to be, you know, yeah, there's going to be, like, I, you know, you talk about, you know, people wanting to be part of a group and involved with a group and, and um, you know, the, the, the breed societies are just co-ops, aren't they? They're just co-ops. They're just yeah. a group of people come together, let's work together and throw our money in and then that money will use for, development and advertising and promotion and all that sort of stuff. It's just a co-op which work incredibly well. It's just what the common element of your co-op is. And so for yeah. breed societies, it's the hair follicle colour of an animal. It, we can come up with better ways of 
forming co-ops that are based around more interesting or more important or more relevant things than the hair follicle colour of an animal, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, John, we're getting to the end of our, our chat and um, we always finish off Raw Egg with the three M's. What um, mistakes have you made? Oh, I've been thinking about this one, Tom, and I don't know whether I'm, you know, I'm sure many people put in this position going, how personal do I go or do I just talk about my business? This is a, a business podcast. I think on a personal level, um, I'm quite happy to to let everybody know that I'm gay and the part that uh, I think for me was the, the biggest mistake was that I didn't have the courage to come out younger. And it's um, that's probably, you know, it's something that's affected my life a fair bit. Also, you know, it is what it is. It happened when it happened and everyone does it in their own time, I know. But looking back, I just, just wish I'd had a little bit more courage to to, to make that step earlier. Um, the as, as far as the other regret would be, as I've been told a thousand times, is if, if I'd done what I'd done over the last 23 years and started with Angus cattle, maybe it would be, <laughs> I would be in a very different situation. Uh, might be doing quite well now um, as far as the genetics game and what we'd bred if we'd bred Angus cattle for feed efficiency. But again, I don't regret a thing. I don't. I, I don't be hard on myself about that. It was a choice, and I love what I do, and I'm very passionate about it. So it is what it is. So, so one so of that would be a couple of one of your mistakes was um, going with the flow, and the other one was going against it, sort of. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Good way of putting it. <laughs> so, what about your masterpieces? Oh, look, I'm going to be really appropriate and just say I feel like my masterpiece is the sort of uh, culmination of the genetics uh, that we have here and the line of cattle that that we're, I'm not much of an artist, I'm, uh, so I can't sort of stretch into those sort of um, places, you know, for the previous generation um you know, my parents created a, a wonderful, wonderful situation for me. And I live here in this be a beautiful house on a beautiful farm in a beautiful country. And I'm so lucky. Um, but as far as the part that I'm going, it's it's about um, my legacy will be about, you know, just hoping that the genetics that's in that population may be useful in the future, I guess, um, to other commercial producers um, around the world, I guess, around the country, around the world. Oh, I think you're underselling yourself. <laughs> anyway, it is what it is. <laughs> well, I think we need a. Ha I think you need a hand with that one. I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So anyway, um, you're no Bluey's done. You've done a fantastic job in in doing what you've done with um, with your cattle. It it's an inspiration, definitely an inspiration to me. So thank you. Um, it's, it's nice to be. It's nice to be sitting in this place, you know, in this spot, twenty three years down the track, and you know, I've I've really, really tried very, very hard to shift or to unravel all the stuff that I was taught when I was young, 
in the show ring and all of that sort of stuff. We didn't have a chat about that part, but um, <laughs> is to unravel the part about looking at animals. It's so, hard. It's really, really hard to unravel all that stuff and to not look at them and make decisions, but take the data and all the information um, and consider it all. So to sit and say, I've got all this data that I look at and I love, but I also look at my cattle and I think, I, I, you know, I think they're acceptable animals. I think they're pretty good animals to look at as well as with the data behind them. Good on you. So um, what about some mentors? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I would say, um, you know, certainly uh, sitting in a Beef Improvement Association conference, um, hearing Jim Leachman speak about composite breeding and that sort of stuff was a, a moment in my life, I think, where it just clicked and that made sense and I just thought it was very, very interesting. Um, I was the beef cattle officer that was in our region, a fellow called Rob Hart, who's a beautiful man. Um, uh, every opportunity I could get, I'd go and go around with him to, in the days when those guys went from farm to farm and, you know, consulted personally on farms and that sort of stuff. And I, I learned a great love of, of cattle through him and appreciation and the power of he was very, very empowered by um, composite breeding and bringing the best of a number of breeds in to create a better animal. So um, that would be one. Dick Whale has been with me through the whole journey here. He was in the job that I was in at the research station in Trangy, and uh, he's been our structural assessor right through. And he's a really interesting man and has given a lot to the industry. And, um, you know, I really appreciate um, the relationship that I've, I've and the journey that we've gone on together. So he's a, certainly a, another big player. Thanks, John. Thanks for coming on to the Raw Ag podcast. And you're obviously so passionate. I mean, I, I <laughs> love catching up with you and having a chat because, you know, it's, it's um, always going to be a challenge to um, have a conversation and, and sort of you, you, you punch pretty hard and be, and it's because you you just love and are so passionate about the industry that you enjoy and all the work that you've done with Bluey is uh, inspirational so thank you very much for being on the podcast today no thank you Tom I really enjoyed it as always love catching up with you and congratulations on what you do um, in the industry too it's a it's a great podcast and a, and, a, and you're a, a great communicator in the space so um, lovely to be part of it. Thank you for asking. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app.